Hi everybody, welcome back to 17 Karat K-Pop. So, so excited. The Star Seekers concluded in a way I personally loved. There is so much to catch up on. The last Star Seekers recap was up to episode 30. Now let's complete the saga, and I'll catch up to speed on all the twists and turns that TXT's webtoon went through. And also to know more about it, remember, I did touch on its parallels to the story in their videos, like Chasing That Feeling, in that episode of the show called The Name Chapter Freefall and What's Next for TXT. In that episode, I do give a quick character recap, too, for the Star Seekers. So we're going to skip that and jump right back into an episode-by-episode summary. Quick refresher about the webtoon, episodes 1 through 30, we talked about on past episodes, but I'll run through some general plot points really fast. Remember, Star 1 are the focus of this series, and they're both related to the TXT music video story and different characters. So, same universe, but not exactly necessarily confirmed to be the exact same people as TXT's video characters. But the Webtoon ones do encounter similar settings, symbolism, etc. So it's a unique extension of that universe. So in this story, Star One is a five-member boy band from UVIC Entertainment, and they basically are trying to juggle being a band with being the Boys of Destiny, which is not easy. They become Tier 1 artists after, belatedly, getting their magic powers, later than the average person tends to. They all have very distinct powers. Hyuninkai's character, Avi's, in both the video and the webtoon, seems to have animal summoning power and wings. Sol, Subin's character, in the videos and the webtoon, have elf heritage and elf ears. In the webtoon as well, Sol's mom is Lot, a woman who's a very famous singer, and he always feels inadequate because she's touring the world, meanwhile he hasn't even manifested magic on time. Bumgu's character is vegan, associated with plants and healing. Taho's character is Taehyun, who has the spell book with him as his go-to, and has wizard and owl heritage. Then there's Eugene, Yunjun's character, who wields a sword and has antlers because of his deer heritage. So Avi's, Sol, Vikan, Taho, Eugene. Lot, Sol's mom. And then there's DK, the group's manager, who his motives are questionable, as are the ones of Alistar. We will get more to him in a bit. The TLDR for each episode. Episode 1, Star 1 fill in for an absent Tier 1 group when they are still a Tier 2 group, and get, to put it lightly, a lukewarm reception. Episode 2, Soul manifests magic at last, saves the day when the enemy shows up to the performance. DK introduces himself to the group, and they have bad feelings, wary first impressions. Episode 3, DK puts Soul through this life-threatening test for his magic that makes Soul mad. Like, why'd you risk that? It's the equivalent of, like, teaching someone to swim by pushing them in the water. Then he takes them to Magic Island, the spot where magic powers, if you practice there, are going to be 100 times more potent. Episode 4, they visit the fortune teller, much like they did in that tent in the Frost music video. And the sole physical token reminder this was not all in their heads after it poofs away is that spell book. Episode 5, DK teaches them about causalities. The premise of every time you use magic, there is a physical toll it takes, a consequence. More on that later. Episode 6, the members really have to fight to help Eugene get a spotlight because the CEO of the company doesn't care about hurting his feelings. He wants Eugene to stay in the background because he hasn't developed powers yet and he wants magical power-filled members to steal the show. 
Episode 7, we learn that Tahoe has a magical ability to read from this spell book when others can't. It looks like blank paper to them, but he can see text and illustrations over time become visible. Meanwhile, he's watching a YouTube live stream with his YouTuber friend, Jinyoung who has causalities chronically because he tried to take a shortcut to mastering magic. Yeah, patience is a virtue is kind of a moral of the story there. Anyway, so he needs help. So Tahoe bears a causality and decides to borrow power to send a healing bird over to Jinyoung, which works. Episode 8, Eugene encounters this magical cat, much like in their music videos, not to be trusted. He starts to actually just take care of this injured cat in episode 9, which is part of her plan. Episode 10, Soul has a premonition that comes true. So now we learn Soul sees the future. Episode 11, the enemies are back to fight. The cat asks if Eugene wants power. Yeah, it turns out the cat talks and says she can stop time for temporary periods. She also is adamant she's out for something. We don't know what, but she's crossed through multiple worlds just to get to their world and retrieve something. In episode 12, he says yes, and the cat gives Eugene power. So now he's indebted to her. Yikes. Episode 13 is fight scenes. Episode 14, they shock the villains by really holding their own, without much practice showing they are indeed the boys of destiny. Episode 15 shows a flashback to Lot's regret for kind of giving her son the cold shoulder growing up. Like, she wasn't really emotionally available listening to his needs. Episode 16, Sol is in the hospital fed this purple potion, which will be very notable as the story goes on. 17, the cat confirms she opened up the origin, whatever that means, then poofs away. The guard says he can't say much more, but does confirm these magic potions are good supplements for their power. They'll give them an energy boost. 18. Alistar tells the Magic Island origin story. Magic Island theme park is what humans see. It's kind of like in Harry Potter. There's the average train station and the platform nine and three quarters visible for the wizards to walk through. Kind of like that because Magic Island theme park, just your average theme park for mere mortals. But for Star One and the like, magical people see the hidden recesses of the park that are magic literally. Episode 19, Lote warns them, don't trust Alistar. 20, Alistar complains a lot that these kids don't know any better. He's a power-hungry, annoying jerk. 21, Lot somehow persuades this guy Banya to transfer his power to her so she can lead their sect. 22, the potion supply Star 1 get is now limitless, which should raise an eyebrow. Meanwhile, Lot says she's going to be a kind of a plan coordinator, main operator, basically, others report to, for the Dragon Sect mission. And she says now they have to find the Black Water, which is actually used as the main potion ingredient, but they don't know that yet. 23, that chapter is a lot about emotional development, dynamics changing among members, less about a plot, but they do enter Dragon Peak, so we get our first look at this sub-area of Magic Island. 24, Soul continues to have premonitions. 25, Alistair shows off this big fancy library, but seems hesitant to respond when asked if he could explain more about this mystery spell book. Meanwhile, they're spying on DK secretly, not trusting him. Alistair is not. 26, they practice their magic. 27, it really sinks in the powerful impact Star 1 is having on fans. 
It's making them feel a new sense of responsibility to use their influence for good, so they're literally, but also metaphorically, lifesavers to their fans. 28 is just a practice day-themed episode. 29, the cat comes back. And when it rains black water, that gives Alistair a chance to explain the significance of that water. 30, Tahoe studies a bunch, he's so bookish, and he's trying to learn as much as he can about the members' heritages. White bird, wizard, owl, etc. And soul awakens from a premonition with visible elf ears. Before I go on to recap episodes 31 and up, let's revisit TXT's music video characters. Things you need to remember about them that are related. Bumgyu, the tree spirit character, Vikan, is the character in the webtoon and the videos focused on what happens in Room 17. I didn't plan that, but it seems to shout out the show. I'm touched. Anyway, Room 17 is a part of their short films and the webtoon. It's where, long story short, some shady behavior is happening as they try to experiment and Alistair tries to figure out what to do with the spell book, how to get more pages to become visible. His character in TXT video seems the most focused on his phone amid chaos, yet in the webtoon his character is quite anti-phone, and one with nature really. <laughs> Bumgyu in the videos keeps getting close to help and then is self-destructive and sidesteps salvation, <laughs> like the way he steps on the spell book instead of using it in Blue Hour. He has tools to help his journey that he ignores. Hyuninkai's character, Avi's the bird, the part bird, he has those angel wings in the videos as well. Subin's character, the elf, Soul, is looking for his identity, his true name. That phrase, true name, is used a lot in the webtoon. And his message on the foggy mirror in TXT music videos was, remember my name. Taehyung's character, Taho, the wizard, the bookish character, he's with the book two in and just kind of preoccupied, introverted in the music videos. In both cases, he gets literally chained up, but later freed. And it seems notable, his chapter of a short film was called Moratorium of Rest. Both the concept of a moratorium, death, and the concept of rest, newly relevant in later webtoon chapters, you'll see. Yeonjun, in the videos, in the webtoon, is the character, Eugene, who has those antlers, uses a sword, at least in teaser content for the webtoon, and saves that not-to-be-trusted cat. His character in the videos and the webtoon as well seems like the most distressed one. In the webtoon, he's the oldest member of Star 1, yet he doesn't have senior status. He's not group leader because his powers take the longest to manifest. And he first encountered that cat when he was storming out in a huff from practice because he just, he was so tired of being inadequate in his mind, not measuring up to the others. So that's the circumstance behind his meeting with that cat. And he has the biggest tantrum in Good Boy Gone Bad. And in other videos, he's the loner, that imaginary friend, dance in Love Song the way he's painting the mirage of the Ferris wheel in Blue Hour. He's trying to make this happen, but he is lonely, fooling himself. It's an illusion. So that's who we're dealing with. Now back to the story, Star Seekers episode 31. That blue dye is part of the episode. The one Subin has in the videos too, not just the webtoon. 
Sol realizes not only can he see the future, but elves in general can. And the stronger the vision, the less influenced they are by causalities. So the more they can concentrate and focus on using their magic the right ways, the more control they have over that, the less causalities they have to deal with. DK arrives and tells the members, you got invited to perform at the London K-Pop Fest. And they're really psyched, but Sol had a premonition the Dragon Slayer clan is going to show up and wreak havoc, so they decide they're going to maybe not risk it. But they also see it as an important step, because Alistar and company have been so insistent that they have to leave and quit Star 1 activity. They have to pick one musicians or boys of destiny, so you better save the world instead of being musicians. This is the ultimate has to prove they can do both at the same time. Episode 32, Alistar gets confirmation a big Blackwater shipment is expected soon. He comments the demand is rising for it. Quote, that means more people will be blinded by greed and covet. Unquote. Um, look in the mirror, but I digress. Remember, the black water is what potions are made of. It's a hot commodity. People are getting addicted with taking it. DK drives Star 1 to the festival to perform. They start their plan with DK and Tahoe bolting out of the car, DK generating a force field to conceal Tahoe as he tries to ascend to the highest view possible, assess what's going on. Before you know it, the weapons are out, this combat is intense, the fighting breaks out. And leaves the opposition taken aback, like the boys of Dustin here are ridiculously powerful. Episode 33, Tahoe is struck with a causality way earlier than expected, and Lot, meanwhile, continues to, without the members knowing at all, having any idea, work for the opposition, this dragon sect working against them. But she orders them, hey, go easy on them, don't hurt them, more than you have to for the number one thing I'll prioritize, which is getting that substance and making sure they are under control and going to cooperate whether they want to or not with the Boy of Destiny magic being needed for this end times day we'll talk about later. Episode 34, honestly, probably the most vivid, beautiful, colorful, visually marvelous. Anyway, the fighting continues. Episode 35, more recognition. Oh my gosh, their powers are growing way faster than we thought. Alistar is so threatened by this. Like, he really is like, they're not supposed to be more powerful than me. No one is. We need to tamp this down. If you haven't noticed by now, yes, the potions are analogous to steroids or some other substance that you can make a profit on if you want to monopolize the market, and Alistar basically does. So both for profit and greed in terms of power, harnessing their power, or just, you know, suppressing it, making sure they don't surpass him in terms of power, that's why Alistar is intentionally getting these boys addicted to the potions. Episode 36, DK continues to point out why they should maybe be more hesitant to go to the potions as a source of an energy boost because those were always meant to be a supplement, not a central part of their toolkit. Meanwhile, the longer they're on these potions, the more irritable and unlikable they are, the more they bicker with each other, the more they have trouble sleeping. So the long-term side effects of the potions were intentionally concealed from their knowledge. 
there's really a deep message there, not just about the greediness of Alistar with these potions, but with the way he is weakening Star One, not just physically, but by weakening their sense of togetherness. Their unity is dissolving. He's, you could argue, even more than the physical toll, the toll on the group is getting psychological and they're turning on each other. The internal conflict he stoked is maybe the most dangerous part. They need each other. That's the lesson. Meanwhile, the boys start wondering what the true motives are of this dragon sect because they seem to go a bit easy on them. And as a reader, we know that actually what happened is Lote took over and her orders included go easy on them. Episode 37. There's a nice moral of the story to kick things off because Vikan hugs this tree and is like, this is way more rejuvenating than those potions. Go prescribe yourself some nature. Tahoe is increasingly worried. They are developing this tolerance and resistance to the effects of the potions. They have to keep taking more and more to get the same high they did at first. And Vikan does pass on his healing power to Tahoe in a snap so that he doesn't need a potion, so that he can keep avoiding resorting to potions to feel better. At this point in the story, the members don't know what the audience knows, that the potions are made of the black water, and DK doesn't want them to find out. And he recalls this memory of this creature who told him, quote, Your only job is to serve as my eyes and ears. Never tell them anything related to the end. You may not intervene in matters of this world, unquote. So wherever the heck DK's origin story lies and who he gets his orders from, that's really weighing on his mind. He doesn't want to tick off whoever sent him here. There's a really sweet scene between Vikan and Tahoe next in the library, where Tahoe is still poring over books, researching their origin stories, elf heritage, deer heritage, etc. And Vikan points out, hey, don't overwork yourself. Like, I'll blackmail you into not overworking yourself. If you overstrain your eyes working too hard, I will take causalities for using healing magic to help. It's just so interesting at a deeper level, those moments where they talk about using causality and how every way they try to help others has something it takes from them. So it's a way to feel like you are responsible for maintaining the well-being of a community, not just yourself. Just an interesting reminder, told in a typical, playful way from Vikan. Basically, that self-care isn't selfish. Then you can bring your best self to the table, not have others worry about how you're doing, if you're overdoing it. Also in this talk, Vikan says, you know, we can't resolve these issues overnight, so what's the rush? Take this one day at a time. It's okay you don't know everything yet. But he does say he's counting on him because he does not want to do the studying himself, so he appreciates Tahoe's effort. Episode 38, Sol is really feeling inadequate because his special power of seeing the future, he views himself as a failure. Like even, I can't even do my main special power correctly because this past premonition was so blurry and I couldn't control it. I haven't been able to harness, channel my power into forcing myself to witness longer, clearer premonitions. He does continue to find therapeutic though, fidgeting with that blue dye. Meanwhile, this cat is staring at him from a distance, this evil cat. The next morning, Eugene lashes out at the others, and Vikan remarks, Oh my gosh, you've been getting more irritable lately, not sleeping well, etc. Vikan tries to heal him with a literally magic shoulder massage, which does help a bit, but it's undoubtedly the potions are taking their toll. This group is more disjointed than ever. Meanwhile, Lot and the rest of the dragon sect are planning their next move. 
They have the water. Now they have to find the recipe for how to use it. So they split into two teams. One is just a decoy to kind of fake out the boys if they come after them. Also in this chapter, some new pages in the spellbook become visible to Tahoe, at least partly. And a clearer part he can see is this image of a warrior with antlers, which kind of makes him do a flashback, thinking of all the times in the past, the horns, the deer antlers, etc. were imagery or conversations relevant to Eugene in his backstory. Episode 39, Lot continues to be so motherly and refreshingly a leader prioritizing each member. Like, don't go too hard on yourself. Rest and recharge is needed. We got you. We'll cover for you. That is an interesting theme many parties have in this story about the need to prepare for a marathon, not a sprint. Similarly, Tahoeater says, at the sound of danger, let's just do what they said, stay back where it's safe, let the grown-ups handle this, because we don't want to stretch ourselves too thin before our big mission, and Vikan's like, that's my guy. They really are showing maturity in these later chapters, and patience. Episode 40, Alistar reveals his crew, the Dragon Sect, they've lost the Black Water more than once. They've gotten it and had it taken before. His ego is so bruised, he never got over it. He's paranoid about it getting away again. Despite the self-care talk, the talk of taking it easy, turns out the boys had to go where duty called. So they're in on more fighting. They did not just stay home and sit this one out. But they said, fine, if we do this, we have to tell each other we're going to call for backup if needed. So if you get stuck, don't try to handle it alone. Call for backup. So Vikan is quite shocked to see Eugene in a sword fight in a brutal back and forth alone. Vikan's like, why isn't he calling for backup? We could help him right now. Vikan and Tahoe separately find out during this battle while in hiding that Lot is part of this dragon sect, this group working against them. The episode ends with Eugene hit by a causality, now without a potion to help with the relief. Alistar does jump in right in time to save him, kind of, but we'll see. Episode 41, unlike ever before, Alistar goes in on the fighting. He's done with Eugene. He's like, it is time for me to shine. He literally says he's going to crush their morale and he's just so ready to reclaim glory and fame or whatever. It seems notable that all I see are, in the illustrations, seven potions left. More pages become visible to Tahoe, including the phrase, who shall not eat dogs? He has no idea what that means. He also reflects on the nature of free will and how much this magic and when it manifests or when it can't be reined in is really still in their control or even able to be something they eventually learn to have under their control. Quote, I feel like we've been forced to do things against our will, be it getting to know people, good or bad, or going through events, good or bad. Unquote. We'll get to that more later. Key theme. Episode 42, Alistar keeps complaining. Again, he's been embarrassed. His colleague says, we will not let you down again, but I encourage you to give me permission to open up our emergency backup stockpile of potion. We can win this, but we should probably use that, even though you wanted it reserved for the end battle. Eugene wakes up, becomes conscious, Tahoe in the room too, watching over him. He tries to show him a book page, and it sounds like it's not visible to Eugene. It doesn't seem visible to anyone but Tahoe in the main cast of characters. They express lingering skepticism about the potion, safety, and the trust of the people who fed them the potions, especially when Eugene points out the Teddy Prophet to be made. Episode 43, 
DK again brings up the importance for Eugene to still rest and prioritize rest and remember magic is a finite resource. Interesting parallel, because also Lote in this chapter reminds her colleague Banya to sit this one out to rest. Vikan, remember he now knows the truth about Lote, good for him, goes to confront her directly. Like, how could you do this? You're betraying your son. You're acting against his best interests. The illustrations are really, really well done, even more so than the others. Like, her genuine smile is really conveyed, despite him talking about stuff that makes her feel very guilty. But as he talks about his desire to look after Soul, you can tell she's genuinely so touched and grateful that her son does have Vikan to look out for him. And she apologizes to Vikan for what she's been doing in a moment I find very symbolic and possibly going to be recreated in a future TXT video, the moment her face literally cracks like a mere broken and dripping blood. Episode 44, DK arrives and projects a force field around Vikan and Lot. So Vikan can work his healing magic uninterrupted. But good for Vikan. Even this incident did not make him go easy on her. He still presses Lot for answers. Like, why are you doing this? You're hurting your son. She apologizes and says she'll explain more after the big end day. Vikan recalls Alistar's version of events, saying they told him the world will be better after the dragon at the end comes back to life. Lot responds, indicating surprise that Alistair framed it that way and disagreement with that characterization. Lot does admit she did cause a scene as a decoy, a distraction, and admits her team has been looking for something, but they didn't find it. But they did find some useful info. So she tells him, you'll learn more, go to room 17. I hope you remember room 17 from TXT's previous short film. Meanwhile, Tahoe loses his spellbook. So despite losing their tools and their concentration, like this is an ideal weak moment to get your opponent, the opposition just gives up too. They're done with star one for the day, furthering their suspicions that they're supposed to be, they're ordered to be kind of cautious, not more harmful to them than necessary. 45 and 46 follow what happens when Vikan enters room 17. Yeah, there was no lock or anything. And Alistar is in there with a colleague and Tahoe's book. And he's using the spell book with different magical tools. Like he's trying to figure out what other object should be used in conjunction with the spell book to really fully activate its power. And he's coming up short, so he's like, let's go find other magic objects, then come back and try those. Although Alistar seems to be making the rickiest mistake, frankly, by leaving the door unlocked, then Vikan makes a rookie mistake, if you ask me, and decides to not really wait super long. So, like, he jumps off the stair railing to the first floor of this office space right away. So the second Alistar and his colleague walk away, Vikan goes down to snatch back the book. If I were him, I would have waited a few minutes just to be sure they really left and didn't go back because they forgot something or changed their mind. Because they do, they go back and they see him. They catch him, and they're about to just pin him down and tie him there. But then some big destruction sounds like it's a foot nearby, so they go run to investigate, and Vikan, while they're distracted again, runs away with the book. He again in that chapter was, like, really defending his friends more than he used to in this story. Like, he really accused them to their faces, like, fearlessly, hey, you took my friend's book, give it back. Totally undaunted. 
He also found out when he was overhearing them before he made his appearance known, they did indeed intend to get the boys addicted to the potions. So, as he fidgets with that blue dye, he sees the appearance of kind of a feminine image, like a ghostly outline of a woman, a floating, glowing spirit before him, who I hope you recall we saw in TXT short film in the past too. She was definitely alluded to. Episode 47, the four of them rush out to find Vikan. Eugene said he was going to do that by himself. Of course, the members went with. They won't let him do this alone. But they all get blocked before they can even pass the gates. Because under orders, they have to be kept there no matter what. Magical chains get thrown on them, reminding me of the Puma-era chains, to prevent them from escaping. Episode 48, Vikan continues to be on a roll and confronts DK now. He's like, what is going on, really? And he opens up, it looks like the opposition plans to just kill anyone who won't fit into their picture of an ideal utopia in the future. DK says he'll open up more, but now is not the time. Let's get out of here. He also has that look on his face Lok kind of did when talking to Vikan. Not really pride, but kind of pride. Admiration when he talks about the lengths he's going to go to defend his friends. Eugene, while chained up, gets big mad, and it's like a Hulk moment, and he turns into his antler-wearing, sword-wielding self, and breaks, literally breaks his chains. Meanwhile, that cat is back, spying from a distance. Episode 49, Secrets Out, Soul finds out his mom has been part of the opposition. Naturally, he's grieving beside himself, while one of the members of her group approaches them and says, I take responsibility for most of what happened to you, and it's not her fault, don't blame her, about how all this unfolded. He also admits to acting out of fear, which is a super meaningful moment, because you'll recall in early episodes, they were also shocked when DK talked about fearful moments. Like someone like you? Being scared ever? What? Now they have the same reaction to a different person who seems like a tough guy. Like, fear is something externally tough-looking people have too? Episode 50 is a super must-not-skip chapter. I'm just going to quote it verbatim. The boys finally get a fuller backstory for Magic Island and what comes next. One day, a Magic Island, superpositioned on another world, was created and magicians appeared. The magic came out of nowhere. It consumed the entire world in chaos and anticipation. All the magicians around the world came together to study so that the confusion caused by the magic did not turn into fear and the anticipation did not turn into greed. However, once they learned about the reincarnation of the dragon, they split up according to their true motives. We learned that one of the accessible worlds had vanished without a trace. It was an apocalypse. The dragon at the end judges the world and brings the end to it. The emergence of Magic Island and Black Water are omens of the dragon's coming. The emergence of the Boys of Destiny is also a sign of the dragon and the apocalypse. The world has ended after facing ruthless attacks from the dragon. That's why we thought the Boys of Destiny might help us with the judgment. Now that you are here, the dragon will make judgments and begin ruthless attacks. We desperately want everyone in this world to survive, including those who cannot use magic, unquote. This is a really interesting one to reflect on in terms of deeper character traits and motivations. That this is about people who all came together trying to use magic for the right reasons, but they became blinded by their separate greeds and desires, and that blindness took them in different directions. 
that fracturing led to power struggles, disproportionate power dynamics, and now you have different groups of people, some who encourage this drag-into-the-end judgment day for a new world, others fear it because they... They now are not on the same page about do we live in a world like us or coexisting with non-magical people. They have different views of what utopia is. Equality and differences versus uniformity. And peace, they assume, is inherent to uniformity. Yeah, big social commentary here about how people view the world and unfairly, I would argue, often view diversity and peace as mutually exclusive. It's also really an interesting moment because the boys comment on, like, we know the feeling. Because they used to not have magic too. They were the lower tier artists viewed as less than because their magic wasn't manifesting at the rate of others. So as they hear the story, you can imagine they're putting themselves in the shoes of the muggles, basically. Sol reacts with a ton of anger. He's still obviously really trying hard to process the betrayal of his mom and all the secrets. First of all, he makes a pretty astute observation that coming clean sooner would have helped them not fight as much amongst each other. Like, if they knew the stakes, the true stakes, if they were trusted with this info, they would have been like, we have bigger fish to fry. We know now it's not worth this petty squabbling. And they may have really kept the bigger picture in mind and kept up a united front more often. They would have felt incentivized to work together, work things out between them easier. He also views her as more selfish than sheltering him. And Lote is pretty humble in that moment. Truly sounds like she's hearing her son out and says, you know, you're right and maybe I was also blinded by greed and just a lack of awareness of the full picture. You see that with Alistar too in these characters. The adults in the story really do not think highly of what youths believe. They always think they know better, and that's a big theme in TXT's whole story. Pushing back on that notion. Episode 51, the boys put on apprenticeship robes. And I called it out just because I feel like in a future TXT video, that may be the wardrobe for it. So if so, you heard it here first. That was from the webtoon. If that doesn't happen, I never said anything. We are once again reminded how key the blue dye is to Sol, because he comments on he remembered to bring the dye with him, but not his phone. This is his number one go-to now. The colleague before, who confessed to kind of orchestrating quite a bit of Lot's group's behavior, he said they should blame him instead of her, that guy says the dragon sect is trying to suppress info about those potion side effects, and admits they use this potion to keep people under their spell. But he says, I can teach you to use magic the way we do, which is not just about desperation. You have to be desperate enough to manifest it, but concentration. So I could teach you the second part. Now it's desperation plus concentration, intention. That helps your magic become long-term sustainable, spread out in when it's at its peak. It has lots of peaks then, gradually, as opposed to one big rise and fall. The boys, for the most part, super eager to learn this tactic, learn how to better concentrate long-term on their magic's applications, except Soul, so they kind of just give him time to go be alone, still processing everything with his mom. And episode 52 is about their personal one-on-one -on -one conversation, where she opens up and says, quote, You're right, Soul. Banya's anxiety made him rush into action, but I was no different. I was fearful and I assumed I couldn't do anything. I'm glad I learned about it through you before the reincarnation, unquote. Common theme we're seeing here. They say fear and nerves as the reasons they made rash decisions. 
The part of that that's super key, I think, is when she says, I assumed I couldn't do anything. Like, this was just bound to happen. This was the only option. Like I talked about in the last TXT episode about Freefall, this era is about grappling with the realization that there's often a third option. Shades of Grey. They don't have to fully reject what Neverland was all about, but they can't stay there either. But it doesn't have to be the clean break the way they think it does. She assumes she has to take either this route or this route proposed to her, not realizing there is always a third option or some sort of compromise. Which gets to the bigger theme in both the videos and the webtoon about more of fate being up to you still than you thought, having more agency than you thought. We're back to seeing the cat spy on them and the sparkly floating ghostly figure appears. They once again bring home that theme of self-care isn't selfish kind of a thing. Building yourself up again, recharging, actually helps your team more and others more with the practice session. When they're learning to concentrate their magic, they learn basically the key is to know themselves well. The environment, techniques, etc. that best suit them. So you need to know your own strengths. That's the key. It's interesting that they said, quote, we never thought about it, unquote, when they reflect on where they stand. The Dragon Slayer clan said they're going to remove the dragon, no matter what. The Dragon Sect is out here wanting a world with magicians only. They don't even know where they stand. And again, they realize they don't have to pick either. Those are extreme positions that they don't have to take. Nice out-of-context quote, We're confused because of all the apocalypse and dragon talk. Those lofty life-and-death ideas don't really resonate with us, unquote. Very much a reminder of their youth, their still-developing brains. That mysterious ghostly figure returns in episode 53. After they mention room 17, she starts to cry, then poofs away. The boys were freaked out at seeing her, but Sol was like, Don't worry, I've seen her before, she's chill. Banya continues to try to teach and compensate for the damage he might have done earlier to them, at least emotionally, by teaching them these new techniques. It's interesting because he keeps talking about his regret for working against them. And Eugene responds, quote, Is it a clan thing to make a mountain out of a molehill? Unquote. Another pretty good out-of-context quote. And Banya just seems so startled by the simple way Eugene frames it. Like, just apologize to us and move on already. Stop lingering in regret. What's the point? Again, it seems like a common theme throughout this story is the younger people have more moments of wisdom than the older ones do. Lot gets a status update that concerns her because it sounds like Alistair and company are going to try to get UVIC, the talent agency, implicated in their plan, which adds a whole other wrinkle to whatever the boys do against Alistar and company, because if they team up, that means an attack on Alistar is against also every innocent artist who works under UVIC. They have to factor in way more people affected by their actions if this happens. So Lot is like, they need more time long-term to wean off of and get rid of the side effects of those potions before this intervention can be a handable crisis. So I need to buy them time. Episode 54, the cat's back to spying as the boys talk to DK. They're asking permission to talk to UVIC, and he warns that will put them back under the radar of this dragon sect, who at the moment don't know where they are. They don't know where the boys are, and they should maybe keep it that way except the members Lot and Banya, who are basically defectors. Turns out, yes, the Dragon Sect is teaming up with UVIC, so UVIC has agreed they will fund a massive, exciting Star One 4th Anniversary concert. 
in exchange for the funding, they want the sect to turn over Star One. Episode 55 starts with Lode again apologizing, saying, I can't tell you what to do. The future now, I will let you decide yourself. I trust you and your vision. I trust you all to do what you think is right. The choices are yours. I'll just let you lead and I'll take a back seat. Eugene shows some new maturity and compassion, saying he doesn't know about if they should even do this gig, the moral quandary it could put them in, that he has to really think about how it would affect everyone, every party, if they took advantage of this funding. Maybe Eugene is getting back to be a more, frankly, likable character because he's indeed having the potion side effects like irritability fade out of his system. The boys realize they have good oppo research on the dragon sect because what they fear most is bad PR and they could blackmail them in the future because they know they're being shady about the potion, not disclosing its effects on users. So by threatening to expose their planned operation to suppress info about the side effects, they could really weaken the group's image and shame them. They want to start the plan, so Lote generates the portal for them to go through to kick things off, but then she decides, you know what, I will go with you just in case. Now the next few chapters make more sense to talk about as one big chapter, because at first it seems like what happens is again there's a fight with the Boys of Destiny against Alistar and the crew. With Lote back to working with that crew against the boys, like psych, all on, I was still on their team. And I felt morally okay with giving you up in exchange for fellow Dragon Clan members being freed, being released. I thought it was the most moral route to give up five boys in pursuit of my fellow people. So not only do readers think Lot has betrayed her son, but that she's betrayed him after seemingly apologizing and changing her ways. Doubly painful. But the next episode shows her busy at the UVIC HQ in a meeting, and someone approaches her to talk about what happened, what's going on. So it sounds like she's been here the whole time. Yeah, it turns out someone magical who's been spying on them and not trustworthy used magic and took on the image of Lote to really mess with the boys, make them think Lote was not to be trusted anymore. So the boys are back to real anguish that really distracts and demoralizes them. You probably guessed by now, that friggin' cat. That's who used magic to turn into her. Alistar now has this golden scepter with a green emerald on top. A detail I just flagged because it just feels like that is also, like with the robes, something I wouldn't be surprised to see as a key detail in a future music video. But again, if that's not the case, I never said anything. If I did, I'm a master at predicting. Really interesting comment from this cat pretending to be Lot. Quote, you're not even strong enough to be a liar like me, unquote. Episode 59, someone's trapped in ice, there's lots of fire, powers are out of control. Vegan and Eugene especially lose control. Like Eugene's horns, he's in his own altered state. Vegan is in full plant mode. He is really out of his element too, like lost control of his own actions. Episode 60, Lot now has three new big goals. Kill the cat monster, keep her colleagues safe, keep Eugene and Vegan from continuing this spiral. This is pretty clever if you ask me. Lot plans to magically link the minds of two members to two members so they can telecommunicate, but not four ways, just back and forth to each other. Avi and Vegan, Sol and Eugene. 
so Avi can tell Vikan, telecommunicate the message she wants him to, Sol can communicate to Eugene, hopefully kind of retake the reins. What's smart about that is that the members have this sense of obligation to each other, and if one of them is determined to finish a job, they all pitch in. So if they were all connected, and one member bailed, was like, we have to stop this mission, they would all follow his lead, probably. This way, they don't even know. Like, if one of them says, I'm out, let's stop, and two of them stop the mission, the other two wouldn't even know they had done that. Which is why they wouldn't, because they would have that sense of, we can't just bail and leave the other half hanging. So she's exploiting their trust in each other, their sense of obligation to each other, in a frankly pretty smart way. She knows this is risky because the causalities could be off the charts. She's using so much magic right now at once to link up their minds to make this happen. But she thinks it'll be worth the risk. I have to do this maneuver. It's a risky one, but it can pay off because this current fight then will end as fast as possible. There are so many truly deep quotes near the end of the chapter, so I'm just going to take them directly. The world has descended into chaos after being surrounded by magic. The cat needs a powerful body to carry my great master's soul. Lot responds, I see, you, just like us, started this for your world's sake, but we are just as desperate. We will never give in. You've come to our world and watched these boys. Have you seen them give up on anything? The cat says, exactly. I need that persevering strength to defend my world. Lot says, persevering strength is not found in physical bodies. You knew it wasn't. You were just like us, who made many mistakes out of fear of the dragon at the end. If I may give you advice, as someone trying not to repeat the same mistakes, go back to your world, and like we have, find the right way to save it. I hope you find a solution that doesn't require coercion, unquote. Basically, she says, you got it all backwards. Your strength doesn't come from physical assets or from wearing down other people to make you seem proportionally more powerful. Lot's words reverberate in their minds in episode 61. She told them, quote, everyone please create a never-ending future for us, I beg you, unquote. Create a never-ending future for us. That was her final wish. She basically gave herself up to the magic. Use so much magic, not just to get the telecommunication channels working, but to prevent them from having to experience causalities entirely. They can fulfill the mission causality-free, using magic to the max, now that she's left them with her magic snow and basically dissolved, perhaps into the image of just a ghostly spirit who will be a guardian angel for them. Interestingly, Sol is oddly calm when he realizes what happened. He said this was not a surprise, she would do this kind of thing. But Eugene is quite mad. He has a different reaction. He's grieving and angry. He's like, she really told us to spread the consequences, to spread the blame and the responsibility to do this together, yet she carried this heavy burden entirely by herself. Episode 62, DK asks Sol if he feels like his mom just abandoned him. He says, quote, I am as proud of my mother as always, but I also feel bad for her. I am grateful but lonely, unquote. He really does grieve now, with DK consoling him as he flashes back to being a little boy, holding her hand and stuff, literally looking up to her. The boys now have a renewed sense of fight in them. Like Lot's death, her dissolution, can't be in vain. We are going to make that never-ending future that she made her final wish. 
DK says the dragon sect is kind of totally in chaos right now without a leader, so the coast is clear for now. Let's go back to the headquarters of UVIC. The CEO is like, there are my boys that I so genuinely care about. Then gets really ticked off and is like, you guys are terrible. After they talk about, maybe let's postpone talking about this fourth anniversary lucrative concert. They realize the dragon at the end day could be tomorrow or years from now. They have no idea, so they have to be ready at a moment's notice. Practically speaking, and just in terms of, again, fulfilling Lot's request. Suddenly, that chapter ends with a close-up of elf ears growing. A new phase, a new transition is upon them. They continue the ethos of we can't let each other handle anything alone. When Sol is distraught after a premonition, he tries to hide as sleep paralysis or just a bad night's sleep. And they just confront him the next morning like, you're bottling this up, aren't you? Don't do that. All of a sudden, as they're debating, so we figured out the dragon sect and what they wanted, and what the Dragon Slayer clan wanted, self-explanatory, did we ever figure out what DK wants, whose side he's on? Naturally, DK shows up at that exact moment, and without any warning, whisks them all away to Dragon Peak. In episode 64, they land there and he asks them to look around and detect any differences. They don't really, but one member does detect more flowers than he remembered seeing in the meadow previously. More red ones too, not just purple ones. The purple ones that were throughout TXT's videos. So if we see more red ones added to the purple in that field in the future, don't be surprised. He says this is the place where they will learn some secrets, because magic is accumulated here, which leads to insight. And maybe then they can find out when this dragon reincarnation is set to occur. They're like, how would you know it's here? And he reveals he is the dragon's eyes and ears, kind of like doing his bidding as he's the voice. Sort of like in Harry Potter, when Voldemort makes Quirrell wear him under his turban. He needs a body to direct, so he's still in charge, pulling the strings, but not physically present, except for a face. Anyway, the point is, this dragon is using DK similarly to do his bidding and be his eyes and ears. He admits he used to be in their shoes. Yeah, apparently there has been generation after generation of Boys of Destiny. This is cyclical. And DK himself was a Boy of Destiny who basically was reborn in the new reset world as a lackey, basically, for the dragon. They are swept up in a bizarre, magical montage of imagery. Everyone's gone but soul. And this woman, a fellow elf, approaches... She says, quote, I am part of the records that kept track of what was lost. How does it feel to see the world be reborn, having wiped away what is unfathomable to humans? Unquote. Episode 65 takes place in this strange state. Like, the magic really did put them in the place of the whole world is purified and empty now. Like, time and space, total do-over time. This was all kind of a mental trip, so they do go back to the present day. They don't just abandon the plot laid out so far, but this chapter is stuck in this mental trip DK provoked. And this elf woman, long story short, talks to him about this beautiful new world that is a clean slate. But he remarks he doesn't like this. It's too pure, it's too beautiful, none of his friends are here. Other humans are flawed, that's why they're not here, but they make life worth living. So he feels like this isn't right. But she warns him, quote, You're trying to fix the world that the dragon, after watching for a long time, deemed beyond repair, unquote. 
Sewell says, quote, I alone cannot make a difference, but even if it's a difficult path, it's worth trying with the help of others. This has been and will be the story of my life, unquote. It seems to me like it's Soul who then gets the spellbook summoned to him. But I thought that was Tahoe's thing. So then I started thinking, wait, did I mistake Soul for Tahoe here? I don't know what's happening. But Tahoe or Soul gets this book and also says, quote, let me meet with the wisest being here, unquote. And now a giant snake shows up, Kodal, God of Wisdom. Kodal asks him, what do you want to know? Like, almost like he's a genie. Ask him whatever, but it comes at a cost. He can give up a body part to get an answer. So Sol gives up his right eye vision and worries this is like a deal with the devil with that elf woman's guidance in his head about he must, quote, abandon the purity of the elf and put your life on the line to turn to evil, unquote. He's learned that elves truly do have the biggest capacity for magic, but that also comes with the deepest consequences. So if he does get rid of the purity of the world, as they put it, the consequence will be death. Like the stakes are life or death. Does he want to do this? Clear symbolism here. It viewed as don't even bother trying to fix a world that's broken, but he tries anyway. Love these heroes and their refusal to accept this apparently predetermined fate that it's either you're good or bad, black and white, dead or alive. No, he will find a third option. DK shares a long monologue with his backstory a bit in episode 66, saying he was very shocked that these boys never gave up. Like, he has been watching the cycle of Boys of Destiny give up again and again, take the easy way out. He's kind of implying each future group of those boys did just hit reset. They chose option A, not option B, keep fighting for a better world with what you have and who you have. So their commitment really took him by surprise. He also says he's been burned out and hopes that they can carry this torch because he has nothing left to give this world. He says, quote, I'm sorry to say goodbye like this. I look forward to the future of your world. I will keep rooting for the future of your world. I hope you take a different path than ours, unquote. And with that, he's gone. They realize why the dragon sect was spying on DK. They were so wary of him because they also viewed him like the boys of destiny. You're a sign of the impending end of this world. Meanwhile, this concert is still happening, this anniversary concert. So now they're like, do we cancel it or do we do it even though the dragon might show up mid-show? They decide that's inevitable based on the premonition it's going to happen. So let's just spend our last day with our fans. Then there's a flash, flashback, flash forward, whatever you want to call it, to that talk with the snake again. And the right eye is given up, and we learn what he asked the snake. In exchange for sight, the snake gave him the answer to that question. What is the true name of the dragon of the end? It's Son of the Star. Something they puzzle over in the next few chapters. Like, does that represent the dragon song? Or does the dragon just listen transfixed to the song? Do they mean a literal song? Or is this more of a metaphor? How do we interpret this? Suddenly, no one teleported them. No one did this on purpose. But they all end up popping into Magic Island theme park. Remember, that's where there's real magic. The mere mortals who are tourists there, they don't realize it. They're just cosplaying magicians for the day including themselves. They see little kid versions of themselves in this park, just playing magician. They're kind of shocked, like, does this mean we met before and it was wiped from our memories? Like, as a kid, we knew each other? Those boys they watch sing the song together that simulates magic. 
they're playing magic by sending a special song. Now they're thinking, if we can tap into this forgotten memory more, maybe we'll figure out what the Song of the Star is. We sang it before. Episode 68, the boys are back in a rehearsal room, a dance practice room, and that blue dye is gone. They realized that dye was used as like a single-use magic item, so it disappears after use, and that was what had poofed them into Magic Island. So in a future TXT video, watch that dye for its one-time use, even if it's not the exact same use as the webtoon. Its presence is noted, and it serves as this key tool for being guided to the right answers. As the boys try to keep each other motivated, staying strong, Sol admits he did give up that site for the answer to the question. They're backstage in the hair and makeup department, preparing to hit the stage for that fourth anniversary show in episode 69. They learn about more of their true names that seem to just be coming to them. We will get to that at the end. They discuss their true names, then the show starts. Sure enough, the dragon arrives, just like in the premonition. The flashback is recalling that elf woman advising, quote, We only live with what we're given. Your body cannot handle taking something you were not born with, unquote. This is such an interesting recurring theme that taking it easy on yourself, only doing what you can do in your role in this, and trusting others will fulfill their roles too, leaning on others, trusting others to do their part, is not mutually exclusive from trying your best and going for the gold she also reminds him summoning power is different, and he's been doing a lot of summoning power, but that's just borrowing power. Using your power is different. Quote, you must fully accept the power and fuse yourself with it, unquote. Basically, get in touch with the magic, recognize the magic that's been inside him all along. The final episode, 70, they recall being told through that look through the dragon's ear, they call it, that DK helped facilitate, they learned one of them has the power to summon Kalavinka, a force more powerful than even the dragon who sings that magic song about peace. Here's a somewhat corny, but I find touching, quote during this chapter. The key to unleashing magic is longing. If the strong desires form magic and stay near us like ghosts, what we need now is not magic, but your support. It wasn't about defeating the dragon at the end. The role of the boys of destiny was to deliver people's deep longings to the dragon. As a Korean idol group, we were best positioned to do it. So, Soul, the song of the star only works when all of us sing it together, wishing to survive and live on. The people in the perished worlds also want to live on, and so do we. Here are desperate wishes, unquote. Note that one of them somehow has conjured up this white flower crown while still staring at this red dragon they're defeating. With the power of peace and song, that flower crown might appear in future videos. So they're saying what they need is that ghostly presence like of Lot's spirit. They needed support to go inward and find inner strength. There's another montage of images, memories, good and bad, and they ask, is this place worth preserving, despite everything? But, quote, there are many kinds of people here. It has everything, making it difficult to describe in simple terms. What I know is, we will keep going, as long as there is hope, however little it may be. We've always been this way, and we always will be. This I am sure about, unquote. Well, looks like Lot's ghostly spirit shows her gratitude for being able to watch these boys blossom and figure out basically the meaning of life. That it is messy, full of people who tick you off, but you might not have it any other way. It is a ride, a roller coaster ride, worth being on. Quote, I hope you keep singing the song that holds the deep longing of everyone. 
do not forget and keep on singing, unquote. With the final monologue and music and action sequence and summoning, a bunch happens. End of the day, they wake up looking wiped out, lying on the ground of the venue, but they did it. They vanquished the dragon. All the fans are safe. And they pull off the concert. Yeah, not canceled. They're like, we're just getting started. That was the opening number. And it's on with the show. And one of the last images in the webtoon is their Polaroid picture, taking a picture with the concert crowd. So they saved their fans, protected them, decided this life is worth preserving, learned to really trust each other, weaned off the material analogous to steroids, found true magic through confidence and teamwork, and kind of outsmarted all their enemies. What an ending. They also found their true names, the biggest part. And one of the more directly linked to TXT's themes in their videos, part of the story. Really, really enjoyed that story. There is room for a sequel. I mean, it sounds like Alistar and Company still out there. I guess that cat that turned into Lote just never came back, but you never know. There are still questions that could be answered, so... Or maybe a prequel. Maybe DK is the young boy. That'd be interesting. Because remember, he knew Alistar when they were younger. So there's material here. The story may not be over yet, but this was dubbed the series, not the season finale. Now, as you know I'm prone to do, especially in episodes like music and mythology and hyphen episodes, I love getting into the specifics of mythology references, and this one had some big ones toward the end. They talk about one of the puzzles that helped lead them to the answers about this dragon was related to understanding the story of Icarus and Daedalus. That story helped give them clues as to their true names, what those could be. We talked about Icarus before, BTS referenced it in Past Eras, the one whose wings melted, he flew too close to the sun, died after falling in the ocean. Daedalus is Icarus's dad. He made those wings, and he's the one who warned Icarus not to fly that close to the sun. He was trying to give him a moderation lesson, saying take the middle path, avoid the extreme heat or cold, then those wings will work. But he didn't listen. Daedalus is a character who makes super lifelike sculptures. A master artist who made sculptures so lifelike, they had to be tied down. They literally would come to life. That lifelike. Myths are so wild. Anyway, he was held as a prisoner with his son by King Minos. Daedalus is the character in mythology responsible for building the labyrinth. Made me think of Maze in the Mirror. That was a gift, basically, for King Minos, trapping the Minotaur there. The Minotaur stuck in the labyrinth, not smart enough to get out. Daedalus might sound heroic then, but keep in mind, he once tried to kill his nephew, out of jealousy. But Athena saved his nephew and turned him into a partridge to live on as a partridge, after Daedalus literally just tried to throw his nephew away. When Daedalus has to bury Icarus, a partridge flies over that scene, as if mocking him. I would keep in mind in the future, there may be a seashell and or string symbolism in TXT's videos, because King Minos used a seashell and string in his tricks while trying to coerce info out of people, long story short, after he went on the lookout for Daedalus. So I have a theory. Remember in the Eternity slash Puma era stuff, in that short film, Yunjun had a version of himself, basically dead or unconscious, I think dead, bloodied and beaten up at the bottom of the cliff. What if that old Yunjun represents the nephew that Daedalus threw off the cliff? At the bottom of this cliff is that nephew. 
Just a thought. And maybe it was him. Like father, like son. Maybe still alive, Yeonjun, is Daedalus, who killed his nephew, old Yeonjun. And the living Yeonjun is responsible for artwork, building the labyrinth, that maze in the mirror. Just a thought. It could explain why his character is so freaking angsty too, even compared to the others, because his guilt is stronger that he had to bury. Now Avi's true name is Who Built the Labyrinth, which would be Huninkai. By the way, I'm not reaching. They overtly say Daedalus and Icarus and the Labyrinth in the webtoon. They get the answers by realizing the wings made by Daedalus, the Labyrinth designer, hold the keys to the truth. Another mythology reference is in Vikan's true name, what was in the deepest corner of the box. That's a reference to Pandora's box. This is one of my favorite myths, for reasons that will become obvious in a second. Pandora's box unleashed a host of horrors into the world. But what was hidden in the back of the box? Hope. Hope was there. So Vikan is the embodiment of hope, hence his healing nature. So the characters' true names they discovered. Eugene is who hangs upside down from an ancient tree. Tahoe is who is believed by no one. Avi's is who built the labyrinth. Vikan, what was in the deepest corner of the box. And Sol, I frankly can't find it. I must have missed it or overlooked it, or maybe he didn't have one. Feel free to help me out. I truly could not find in this story proof of Sol's name. Did I just somehow miss that? Was it a one-time shout-out or something? But anyway... Those names, those true names, I would think about going forward with TXT's videos. What traits they show, what themes they go off of, Pandora's box, a labyrinth, an ancient tree. I hope there's a dragon element to future videos. What's interesting about their search for their true names is not just how it parallels the search for true names of the members in the videos, but how these names are not one-word things. They are descriptive sentences. Their true names are not so cleanly stated. They are up to interpretation. Their true names, their true selves, are ambiguous human beings who have multitudes. And that's a big part of the story, that balancing of realizing the world doesn't have to be 100% good or evil. There is a middle ground, which is actually ideal. Now I want to talk about some more broad themes this story brought up that also tie back to TXT's videos pretty well. In this latest video, we saw those characters come out of them. Eugene's, aka Yunjun's, irritable side. Plus he had the interactions with the cats, he has the horns, etc. in TXT videos. Subin, aka Soul. Remember, he has been most affected by the magic frozen in time moment of Blue Hour. He is the most affected at night by his premonitions. In the TXT videos, he encounters the ghostly figure, the motherly figure. Kirinkai's character, aka Avis, has those wings and also has this role really kind of leading more than you think. A lot of the dialogue, at least in this part of the story, is Vikan, Eugene, Tahoe, Sol, actually all of them, but Avis. He's a doer, not a talker in the story, I think, and so that goes with Kai's video character, who always kind of is initiating. The first to walk through the doorway, the first to emerge out of the sewer system in the new video. He is kind of calling some shots. Bumgyu, aka Vikan, we've seen his plant and healing powers with green light at work. And then there's Taehyun, Tahoe, with that spell book. Plus, both in the webtoon and the videos, we've seen the magic island, the fortune-telling tent, the power of the frost and snow, like what Lot dissolved after creating. 
Plus room number 17, the scene where they're chained up in Puma, mysterious figures whenever those show up. Think of Banya and company. The themes we're seeing in these name chapters, super relevant to even just the fact it's the name chapter, the name chapter temptation, now the name chapter freefall. In both cases, the focus is on their names. What's in a name? What does it mean to step into their own? Which relates to the theme of fate, questioning fate, how much is truly in your power to shift and how much of the future is predetermined. In the Star Seekers, the fortune teller says they must be there to learn their true names, and that is what will allow their maximum potential to be reached. They're there to discover who they really are. Hence the Eternity short films focus on that phrase, remember my name. And now obviously, with chasing that feeling, they are still figuring out who they are, now in a brand new to them environment. They've also in the past referenced this physical manifestation of using magic, the consequences, the scars and cuts they bear in the video, similar feeling to causalities. But then they can heal each other, like Yeonjun's wound magically healing early on during the dream chapters. Both stories also have a lot to do with the band name, handling tomorrow by knowing you're together. It becomes manageable to live another day in this crazy world with other people. This sense of teamwork is essential to get through life. And over time, that maturity in these star seekers, knowing what's really worth it to pursue in the long run, who to protect in the long run, who's really going to be there for them. In the early days of the comic, it was more like magic was just a cool thing to show off what tickled your fancy. They see a deeper purpose in what they do now. And in both cases, IRL, the characters, try to remember that magic is all around them to reevaluate how they're defining magical. It's not coming from potions or other things that seem like steroid analogies. It's not coming from greedy, corrupt people selling them the potions. It's not coming from the most physically intimidating people. Their true power and sense of possibility in themselves, that comes from the teamwork and just a total different set of values from what they used to think. They always kept in mind how what they do affects others. They always tried to mature into informed decision makers. Contrasted with TXT while they were still in Neverland, and they embodied all those traits we talked about in the last episode of a child. Children don't think as much about the long-term effects of what they do. They don't think much about the deeper meaning behind what they do. They don't think about why they do it, really. It's just, in the moment, it felt fun. As TXT are now leaving Peter Pan's clutches and able to grow up as a result, they are evolving, maturing, and we see that same change in Star One. And the main current struggles are how to know who to trust in terms of older figures, what advice they're giving you that you should listen to, and what you should disregard and remember you sometimes are wiser than older people with age doesn't always come wisdom. In navigating the trade-offs of a life in shades of gray, not black and white, Star Seekers I see is interrogating false dichotomies like equality versus unity and utopia versus a communal over an individual mindset kind of a thing. The boys being able to live their magical abilities through music versus through literal power, etc. Power and teamwork. They interrogate those false dichotomies through fantastical means. Whereas TXT's story breaks that down also in fantastical ways, but also with more layers of reality and personal stories roped into it. 
That's kind of my working thesis about what the story is all about. It's this evolution into more mature people, which inevitably is leading to just profound changes in identity and goals. The story orientation is going where they decide it is as they grow older and realize more and more how much fate is in their own hands. Autonomy is leading to, ironically, more teamwork and a clearer collective vision. That's my take. Thank you all so much for checking out my recap. If you like this, please know I do have other Webtoon recaps for the Starseekers, as well as Hyphen's Webtoon, so stay tuned for more. I might do more if you're interested. Thank you again for tuning in, and I will talk to you all again very soon. Bye, everybody!